0: Hey Parker, this is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. Black flag days, sunny day flooding, and a military strategy for the Arctic. Climate change is causing a whole host of problems for the men and women tasked with protecting our liberty. And a warming world will continue to tax our armed forces, Which is why I am so thankful Sherry Goodman, senior strategist at the Center for Climate and Security and former deputy undersecretary of defense, took the time to chat with me on warming signs. She is incredibly bright, feisty, and boy, did I learn a lot about the threat climate change poses to our national security and the safety of our troops. I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to us. I know we have a mutual friend uh, that kind of made this happen. And uh, I really wanted to talk about this topic of climate change and national security for so long on this podcast, because I think it's huge, right? It's in the news, it's in the news cycle, but I don't know that a lot of people really get where climate change fits into our national security scenario. Can you start off
1: by explaining that to us a little bit? Absolutely, Kate. Let's, uh, let's start here at home. You know, we have, a, in Norfolk, Virginia, we have the largest concentration of military bases anywhere in the world. We've got Norfolk Naval Base. We've got Langley, the headquarters of Air Combat Command. We've got Army bases at Fort Eustis. We've got Marine Corps bases. We've got sub bases and we actually even have the home of now NATO's uh, second fleet. It's Atlantic. uh, We've we've NATO, a NATO command and a, a second fleet. So it's a very heavy concentration of military forces essential to both U.S. and NATO allied security. This area, southern Virginia, Uh, at the mouth of the Chesapeake is really ground zero for climate impacts on military installations. It's an area where they already experience sunny day flooding, meaning even on days when it's not raining, there's flooding. Sometimes people can't get from their home to the military base to go to work because they can't pass the streets that are flooded out. So, There's a combination of warming waters leading to uh, sea level rise. Uh, You've got coastal inundation occurring, storm surge, as I said, regular sunny day flooding. Uh, So this is an area where climate meets the military directly and the community now is getting mobilized, the military and the local communities, to reset for resilience. Uh, essentially make the community resilient to these forces uh, that are affecting military operations, training, and readiness. Another good example, uh, in Florida, Tyndall Air Force Base, a major training base with the F-22 fighter, uh, withstood major damage uh, in Hurricane Michael last year. There were a number, usually we try to uh, move ships and aircraft out of harm's way when the storm comes. Uh, But this storm came up so fast, so quickly, that not every fighter uh, was able to uh, move from the base. Some of the the fighters, as well as some of the infrastructure at at the base, was severely damaged uh, with an estimate in the billions of dollars to repair. So, And then you have not only hurricanes, storm surge, Sea level rise out west. We've had a dramatic increase in wildfires, uh, and that's affected both military bases. But we also uh, have our military serve as backup uh, to support our first frontline firefighters when they go in to fight these fire um, uh, fight the fires. So our military is increasingly called on today to support what we call. Um, uh, Civil authorities, Uh, and in Puerto Rico, for example, we saw that. We had to send in a National Guard, but then even active duty to help with the uh, first response and also the recovery from that very, very major storm. Now, that's just here at home, Kate. Overseas, we see increasingly that drought across parts of northern Africa, and other climate variations are changing uh, the landscape for so many people and exacerbating tensions in regions from North Africa, where drought conditions are leading terrorists to weaponize water and hold vulnerable populations hostage, making our missions to combat terrorism in the region that much more difficult. And our military leaders have spoken out about it. And probably the most dramatic case we see in this century, and this is really a part of the history we're living today, is the opening of the Arctic. So this is a a whole new area of potential geostrategic competition opening up just because of climate change.
0: So here closer to home with some of our bases that you were talking about, is that risk that we can't get people, you know, boots on the ground fast enough. We can't we can't respond as quickly as we would like to because the road is blocked because of flooding or because we had our, you know, jets taken out from a hurricane.
1: Well, our first responders are are I want to give them enormous amount of credit. They're called to duty much more often. They are often civilians in the community. Uh, They're backed up when necessary by our National Guard and then by our active duty forces. What it does mean is that we're deploying them much more often because we're seeing more extreme weather event. We're living in a time of extreme weather. And it also means we can't rely on the past to predict the future. That's what's changing about today. Historically, in your work as a meteorologist and weather forecasters, you look to past weather forecasts and past observations to rely on in predicting the future. But now with so much climate variability, or what you meteorologists call non-stationarity, the past is no longer as reliable predictor of the future. So we have to rely on different methods and different techniques to be able to gain observations about Today and also projected to the future. That's coming. Uh, we're making rapid advances in that way, but we have to think differently than we have in the past. And we have to deploy our most advanced analytic and risk assessment and predictive uh, capabilities in order to better understand the future and also realize that we have to expect more surprises. Uh, we are living in a time of extreme. Uh, weather events, and the past is no longer as reliable a guide to the future as it once was.
0: These global concerns that you've mentioned and these conflicts that are happening elsewhere around the world because of climate change and the pressures that's putting on either water or food sources, how does that impact us here in the U.S.? Why is it important um, that we don't have conflict elsewhere globally?
1: Well, we... Let's just take the case of migration. We are experiencing the greatest waves of global migration now at any time since World War II. And look, my parents were Holocaust refugees. So I I know and I have lived the importance of being able for our own country to be a refuge for those who have nowhere else to go. Uh, My parents were some of the fortunate few that were able to make it to the United States during that tragic era. And we know that many people around the world today, from our own hemisphere in the south to parts of Africa and Asia, are facing their own perils from a combination of political strife, failed governance, and increasing competition for resources aggravated by climate change. Now, again, this is not the, this can be one among many factors but it is putting people in more peril today. When people don't have sufficient access to water and food to care for themselves and their family, then that—that's the you know that's the first order of survival. So they move first. People tend to move locally from maybe a, a farming area or a her- that has become drought stricken towards an urban center, as we saw in Syria. There was a prolonged drought that preceded the deadliest conflict um, of modern times. That prolonged drought actually drove people from the farms to the cities, drove herders from the pastures also to the cities. The cities in the urban areas weren't fully able to accommodate them, and that also led to increased uh, conflict, to disputes among groups and uh, to the deadly strife that, has, that the country has experienced over the last decade. But it's very clear now that that prolonged drought amplified that conflict. That conflict is one in which we have sent troops into harm's way, American forces, and one where we have now seen the global growth in terrorism that's become really a homegrown challenge as we try to face the forces of violent extremism, not only abroad, but here at home.
0: So, would you say that migration is our biggest threat when it comes to national security and climate change? Or is there something else that you view as this is the thing we need to worry about?
1: Well, we, we call car, uh, climate change a threat multiplier. So, it amplifies other threats. So, for example, we, we, it's been said we're living in an era of great power competition. And if you say those great powers of today, besides the United States, are also Russia and China, we see that competition being amplified by climate change in the Arctic as countries increasingly, as Russia and China increasingly position themselves to have military economic strategic presence and global influence in the region. We also see, as you mentioned, migration being multiplied, amplified, aggravated by natural resource scarcities, some of which is climate driven. Sometimes it's due to water mismanagement, but also aggravated by climate driven drought or weather extremes. Yes, go ahead, Kate.
0: Oh, I was just I was going to say, you know, we keep bringing up this idea of food or water scarcity, and it's kind of hard to connect in the US where you turn on a tap and you have access to clean water for the most part we know there are some exceptions to that but it's hard to imagine what a parent would do for their child to gain access or for themselves even to gain access to food and water
1: yes uh, I mean there, there's nothing a parent would do to gain uh, you know to gain access to clean water but most there are many around the world who don't have access to clean water, and we, in fact, we know it's one of the leading causes of death among children. Is really diseases associated with dirty water, which really should not exist on our, you know, anymore today. But I've, I, you know, I've, I've seen it. You know, I, I, I've seen even in, you know, in Jordan, where they don't have, which is, which is just an example of countries, uh, many countries that where many parts of the country do not have regular running, running clean water. Uh, they might get water into their households through the pipe one or two days a week, but not every day. And they store their water in tanks that they, they have on their roof or around their house, and then they have to basically manage a fixed amount of water for most of the week. And then maybe one day a week, They'll get running water and then they have to do all their clothes washing and all their significant bathing on that particular day. And so they they call them sort of water slaves because the people who are responsible for that, whether it's mostly the women or others in the household, are on the days when they actually have water. They're stuck in the house doing everything associated with having water. So this is increasingly true uh, in countries around the world.
0: I know we're, ta- we're talking a lot about this globally, um, but and and I'm kind of I'm kind of flabbergasted by some of these examples because I think that, you know, I try and stay up on climate news, of course, and try and make sure that I'm on top of it. It's part of my job. But this is kind of shocking some of the some of the examples that maybe we're not aware of or they're not always in the news cycle because we move on so quickly. For me personally, the connection between national security and climate, uh, it affects my family. My brother is in the army. And I'm curious how what kind of risk we're putting our military men and women into and their families that live with them on, you know, bases or around the world. What kind of risks do we face for those men and women with regard to climate change?
1: What, what a great qu- question, Kate. OK, so let's talk about some of those risks. You know, in- increasingly, it's it's very it, there are many parts of the world and in our own country, it's very hot in sometimes it's too hot even to conduct military training without putting our soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines at risk. So, we call those black flag days. And when it's too, when it, when the temperature is too consistently over 90 degrees, you can't train. And so, at our bases in the South and Southwest, we have a growing number of black flag days. That means it puts our training and our readiness at risk. We now have uh, temperatures across parts of the Middle East. I think there was a, a, um, a city in Iran within the last year or two, where the temperature, uh, the wet bulb temperature actually reached 146 degrees, which is the temperature of a cooked chicken. Right. Think about that for a moment.
0: (laughs) That's when your fish is done and you take it out of the oven.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we this is and we have over the last decade, we've deployed a lot of our forces, U.S. military forces into the Middle East. Now, uh, these are regions that are on the path to, on our current path, they're going to become sources, have increasingly high temperatures and increasingly unhealthy uh, living conditions. So that's one thing. Extreme heat characterizes the sea. Then there's the extreme weather events. Increasingly, we're responding, our military, your brother or military spouses Sons and our sons and daughters are having to respond to the next big hurricane or typhoon or wildfire to support either the first responders here at home or across the Pacific or other parts of the world where we're seeing increasing number of these extreme weather events putting many lives at risk.
0: like to pause here for a moment for one of our recurring segments, Warming Signs, where we spot the oh-so-obvious and not-at-all-subtle signals the Earth is giving us. This time, we're honing in on something Sherry has already mentioned. Water scarcity. Last week was World Water Day, and this time last year, Cape Town, South Africa, was approaching Day Zero, the day the entire city would run out of water due to drought, exasperated by climate change. Fortunately, rain came and this year, while limited, they do have a water supply. But this was merely a band-aid on a much bigger problem with water around the globe. The science has shown with certainty that our droughts are increasing. Only 1% of our globe's freshwater is available for us to use in the first place, and drought is putting extreme pressure on what little we have, but it's not the only thing that's impacting the world's access to clean water. of wastewater goes back into freshwater sources, polluting waterways and putting lives at risk. Every year, dirty water sickens a billion people and kills a million, many of those children. By 2025, two-thirds of the world's population will live in a water-stressed area. So what can you do about it? Well, it does start with supporting local policies to keep your water clean. But you can also make a difference with your personal water footprint. Everything you use, wear, buy, sell, and eat takes water to produce. When you fertilize your lawn, those chemicals can run off into the watershed and end up in our bodies of water. When you dispose of chemicals and plastics in your home, make sure you're doing so appropriately and recycle as much as you can. A new pair of jeans takes 1,800 gallons of fresh water to make, enough to provide a family of four with clean water for months. Maybe consider buying resale clothing. Our actions have an impact. This is all pretty heavy stuff, right? Does anything give you hope? Is there anything that you see happening that you say, we're moving in the right direction on this and... You can do more. I can do more to help.
1: Here's how. Yes. Well, I, I am. I am hopeful. I'm. I am an optimist, and I see that innovation, leadership, technology, generally the common sense of Americans, uh, has enabled us to move with each successive generation to take on each next global challenge. Look, I grew up in the Cold War, and when I was coming of age, the greatest global threat was a new potential nuclear attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. And I spent the early part of my career counting uh, nuclear weapons and what kinds of uh, nuclear challenges would, would it take to hold various parts of the Soviet Union at risk and, and deter that Soviet threat. And look, that conflict ended peacefully, right? And the wall came down. Well, you know, today the climate challenge is the greatest global challenge we face because we have to mobilize all of society to, to address it but we are in the midst of a global energy revolution today where we see increasing renewables uh, grid modernization advanced energy technologies across the board from from nuclear to hydropower to distributed energy and rewiring all of society in a way that will both lift people out of poverty and give them lower carbon, cleaner sources of energy. I think that wave is coming.
0: This might be an example of one of those podcasts. You just need to sit back, take a breath and absorb all those incredible insights Sherry just shared with us. I cannot thank her enough for joining me on Warming Signs. And if you liked this episode, subscribe because new episodes published every Tuesday end up right in your app ready for you to listen to. Tweet at me and let me know if you gave this a listen at WeatherKate. That's at W-E-A-T-H-E-R-K-A-I-T. And let me know what you thought. This podcast couldn't happen without my producers, Mia Beachak, Dan Wright, Jim Robinson, and Eric Zirkel, who get it out of my brain and into yours each and every Tuesday. Until next week.